Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we journey into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. With me is my co-host, Susan Fox. Greetings. And our guest today is David Lucarelli who is the mastermind behind the Children's Vampire Hunting Brigade, a very popular um, comic novel. And the second edition of it is currently in Kickstarter and doing very, very well. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, it's it's been great. You were, uh, let's see, you were with us... Um, Around a year ago, I guess. Yeah, I think so. Was it two th- Was it last year? I think because I think the first time we tried it, we all had uh, Christmas cold, so it was. <laughs> no, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Year and a half ish. Yeah. Anyway, but so, we're much better now. <laughs> so, um, let's see. For our listeners who are unfamiliar with the Children's Vampire Hunting Brigade, why don't you tell us a little bit about how all this got started and 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 something about what it's about? Sure. So I was surfing around the Internet one night, and I came upon a story about the Gorbel's Vampire Incident. And what that is, is in 1954, in Scotland, hundreds of school kids went looking for a vampire in this one graveyard over several nights. And it was considered mass hysteria. It was blamed on comic books at the time. And uh, the youngest child involved was only four years old. And that story got me to thinking, what if some of those kids had found what they were looking for? And they formed the Children's Vampire Hunting Brigade. And from there, I thought, what if there were a couple of teenage juvenile delinquents that were in that same graveyard about a half century later and they happened to be unfortunate enough to be there the night the vampires came back. So that was the start of the plot for Volume 1. And you, there was, as I remember, and I'm sort of stammering through this, uh, as I remember, there was an original uh, comic book, actually, that uh, dates to the period. Uh, That's right. Actually, just in the last couple of years, uh, a man named Stephen Baines unearthed a comic book called The Vampire with Iron Teeth, which is one of the idiosyncrasies about the vampire that these kids were looking for in real life, is that they thought it had iron teeth. And up until that time, 
There had been a couple of other theories as to where that idea might have come from. There's apparently an old Scottish poem about uh, a kind of witch boogie woman type character called Jenny with the iron teeth. And there's a biblical passage about the beast with iron teeth. But uh, Stephen Baines, who does the horrors of it all blog and also uh, puts together a reprints of pre-code horror stuff for IDW, in his research, unearthed this story, and you can actually read the whole story online at, at his uh, blog. So they really? did sort out where where the kids got this concept from. Yeah, I mean that's it's a likely explanation. We'll probably never know for sure. I mean there are other factors. There was a steel mill that was uh, right behind the Southern Necropolis Cemetery that was would have been spewing out uh, steam and red fire into the night that probably lent that cemetery a much more mysterious and spooky atmosphere than it might have otherwise had. They could, probably could have made stainless steel teeth for the vampire if that were the case. There you go. <laughs> well, and it's, wow. I just, the mental imagery of having all these kids running around in the middle of the night, uh, you know, and a four-year-old running around with a kitchen knife hunting a vampire. Wake the dead! Wake the dead! <laughs> yes, in, in fact, actually, my, my son, who's uh, six, has has come to some conventions and cosplayed as... As that four-year-old, he he was five at the time, but he can still do four. Pretty good. You know, you know, you've made it when p- other people are cosplaying your characters, of course. <laughs> That's right. Well, I, start them young, as I, family, I say. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's still a very good comic, and we're very pleased to see that it came out in print after our our last talk. Well, thank you, thank you. Yeah, it's it's we're doing really good, um, and I'm very excited about the sequel to it, which is the Children's Vampire Hunting Brigade: Age of the Wicked. And basically, the Age of the Wicked is probably about seventeen, and and who ate all the Fruit Loops? I don't know. No, wait a minute. Those are the ones hunting the wicked. Right. <laughs> I see you've watched the promo video. I did watch the promo video. And everyone should watch the promo video at their Kickstarter page. That's right. If you go to Kickstarter and simply type in Age of the Wicked, it'll come right up. Mm-hmm. That was a lot of fun to make. I Luckily, I have a lot of actor friends that are uh, willing to work for pizza and Thai food. And they did a marvelous job. And the production value, actually, you know, this is sort of a side trip uh, on this thing, but the production value of your Kickstarter video suggests that this would make a really good animated film. Well, I mean, you know, did you think about that uh, that potential? I would certainly not be adverse to that. I think that it it could be a very cool animated film and I've had some interest along those lines from a few different people, nothing concrete as of yet, but you know, fingers crossed, you never know. And I think part of why that might be happening is because you have very strong, yet simple character designs. I mean, there's each one is distinctive, but there isn't uh, um, there isn't a hellish amount of detail in each one. If you'll well, we've got the that moody lighting. You know, it's like the black and white uh-huh. horror film lighting. Yeah, You're using a lot of black ink in there. And it's and it's uh, that all comes that all comes down to artist Henry Ponciano. Mm-hmm. Who, uh, for people that are just listening to this, I mean, there's lots of examples of his art on the Kickstarter. And also, if you go to cvhb.net, you can read mm-hmm. the first 
basically two issues of volume one online for free now. Um, he's got a little bit of a Mike Magnolia influence, but mm-hmm. he really makes the book his own. And I was just talking to somebody today that is involved with the Russ Manning Award for Best uh, Newcomer in terms of artistic talent. And he told me he thinks that uh, it's quite likely that Henry is going to end up being one of the nominees for uh, the award this year. So I'm Wouldn't very that be oh my great. goodness. Who gets to do the nominating? I think it goes to a committee of about 25 people, and they all decide. I'm not 100% sure how that works. How much pizza and Thai food do we have to get for them? I don't know, but I'll spring for it. <laughs> I'll make the spring rolls. Are you kidding? No. So with 13 days to go, you have uh, you have a, a goal of 2,500. That's right. Uh, and with 13 days to go, you've got uh, 2,100 over that now. This is pretty looks, awesome. It's you're, looking good. You're going to hit it. You're going to hit it. I'm hoping we are. I'm, I don't count my, fing- my chickens till they're hatched, but um, mm-hmm. you know, I am going to be doing a, a couple different uh, Kickstarter events coming up soon for anybody locally in the L.A. area. <laughs> um, on April 29th from 12 to 3, I'm going to be at Pulp Fiction in Culver City. And the way it's going to work is if you show up, if you've previously backed it or if you back it while you're there you can get a free t-shirt and poster while supplies last on top of all the other rewards so and then from six to nine that same day uh april 29th i'm going to be at golden apple in hollywood and it's going to be the same deal except you'll also be able to have a drink with me ah so um you're obviously you're going to be blowing by your your uh, goal amount in probably a couple of days. Have well, you given thought to what your stretch goals might be? Um, the first, you must yes, have something, so, something waiting in the wings, just in case that volume happens. three, just a thought. Yes. So the the first stretch goal that we're going to have is if we uh, if we make the twenty five hundred in time, there's going to be a color digital version of the first look. Uh, issue, which is basically the first 23 pages of Volume 2. Mm-hmm. So I did that for the first Kickstarter. We did a, a color edition of the first issue of that, and it was a lot of fun because I'm kind of a, a frustrated colorist and uh, kind of had a, a blast putting that together. The, the look of the characters is so strong. I mean, the design of the book is so strong. I would say, um, you know, Children's Vampire Hunting Brigade um, designer wear. <laughs> it's so hey, good. You know, you know, we, we got some, we got some really cool, uh, reward prizes. Speaking of that, this, this time around, like, uh, I don't know if you guys remember, but the main weapon the brigade uses is something called a wood knife. Mm. And that is basically a knife that has enough wood in it. So that once you pierce the breastplate, you're essentially stabbing them with a, a stake. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it also has a, uh, a sensor embedded within it that's a red ruby that that tells when the vampires are near it glows so we had henry design a 3d model of that wood knife and we're having it printed and i'm going to do some uh some hands-on augmentation of it and it's going to be available as oh, at cool. one reward level as a pendant and it'll be sized so that it could also be uh an accessory for your action figures out there as well. Oh, cool. I mean, that looks, that would make a, a, 
a great full size prop. You know, it would I mean, make a great full size prop. We're not quite there yet, <laughs> but we had, we're also going to do uh, full color all over T shirts using some some of the latest mm-hmm. print technology. So that's going to be fun. And then let's see what else we got. Um, at a certain level, you're going to be able to get um, your own personal digital sketch from Henry of your favorite character. Um, phone call for me, which I can talk all about comics and the brigade and my day job as a sound engineer working on big Hollywood movies and uh, my time playing for, you know, decades in hard rock and heavy metal bands. So um, there's that. And then at the top of the backer rewards, uh, you get to be a character in the third and final volume, which I believe is going to be called uh, All Souls Day. And that uh, we had a similar reward for the first Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. And it was it's not just, you know, like you're not playing a corpse on CSI or something like that. You're not going <laughs> to show uh-huh. up in one or two panels. The character uh, that was based on a real person in volume one is uh, Aaron Downing. And he is an integral part of the plot of volume two. So, uh, what about the plot, the storyline in Volume Two? It's um, this is this takes place after the events of the first book, obviously. Yes. Well, the first book is a complete story in itself, but it does end on a little bit of a cliffhanger, and so this book picks up right at the end of that. And if if you remember at the end of Volume One, um, the Brigade has at least temporarily defeated the vampires, but they've also ended up using their best weapon, which was a one-time use-only weapon. So as we open Volume 2, they're sort of enjoying a brief respite, but the vampire threat is about to escalate exponentially. So um, where Gavin and Doug are two Scottish juvenile delinquents uh, sort of unwittingly became members of the brigade. In this volume, they are forced to jump in wholeheartedly. And, you know, Gavin is 17 and he spends all of his money on peroxide and uh, beer and obscure heavy metal and punk CDs. And events are going to unfold very quickly that will make him grow up a lot faster than he uh, wants to. And then Doug uh, is sort of the conscious, uh, conscience in the heart of the brigade. And he's going to find that doing the right thing in the situations that arise become becomes increasingly harder and harder to do. Um, the brigade is going to go to America to try to uh, seek out a new recruit that has a mysterious past. And in doing so, they're going to be unaware that the entire time they are being manipulated by the vampires themselves. Oh, boy. I mean, it, this this just keeps getting better. Well, thank you. I love the way you've, uh, you've woven all this together. It's... Um these vampires are pretty badass. They don't sparkle. Yes, they do not sparkle. These guys are smart, cunning, perverse predators. And um, Do they turn into bats? 
We don't get into that in Volume 2. You yeah, might okay. see something about that in Volume 3. All right, just wondering. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of my basic vampire questions. Sure, sure. So you, start, well, you started out as a musician, not a writer. That's correct. And you've been, uh, you've got two or three CDs out? Yeah, I've got, we've, my band Dame Fortune has three mm-hmm. CDs and a DVD, and if you look us up on iTunes, you should be able to find all three CDs there. Cool. Um, or you can order them, like, through CD Baby and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Now, is but this... we're actually, uh, we're actually going to be doing a reunion sometime this fall, probably either at the Viper Room or El Cid in Hollywood, so... Anybody that wants to follow me on Facebook, I'll definitely be putting posts up about it there. Now, is this um, uh, geeky-themed music? Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, it is – we have songs that are about – you know, that are inspired by V for Vendetta. We Mm -hmm. have a song based on Calvin and Hobbes called (laughs) The Days Are Just Packed. Um, (laughs) Not – not every song is is necessarily it's not filk music per se, mm-hmm. but you know we have another song that uh, that mentions Golden Apple. <laughs> oh, that's well, cool. they've been good to you. Why not? They have. They've been good to me. I actually wrote this song before they were that good to me, but uh, you know it's funny how that works, huh? They are they are an icon in the in the local comic book uh, culture. In, in, they really in are, and you know, I've, I've been store I've gone time. to for years and years and years, and it's the one that I ran into Gene Simmons on one occasion, and I ran into Harlan Ellison on another. Well, now, well now, when, known. When you say Gene Simmons, you mean the member of Kiss, not the actor on. Uh, the actress has passed actress. away, so I don't think yeah. it's even an issue. And she's Sorry. not really as well known as for her science fiction or imagination not, not so much. Uh, genre no. work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, Gene I should, I should, bringing up Gene Simmons, I should mention uh, the story about how he threatened to sue me. <laughs> oh, this should yeah. be interesting. I knew he was yeah. a gamer. Yeah, so I, um, I did a little freebie comic with my son it was a, actually a fumetti where we took pictures of him um dressed up as as the little demon from idw's kiss kids and it was mm-hmm. kind of a parody tribute to um kiss and kiss kids and the walking dead um and you know i put it up digitally on facebook and i uh, printed up a few copies to just give out to friends and fans. Mm. And it wasn't for sale, right? It was never for sale. I never sold any one issue of it for mm-hmm. even a penny yet. That was the whole idea. And I and I sent it to him on his website and never heard anything. And I gave a copy to Chris Rial at um, IDW, who publishes Kiss Kids. And he was uh, happily amused by it and, and happy to get a copy and, mm-hmm. and, and that kind of thing. And then um, earlier this year, I got a message from Chris Alexander, who's the head of Fangoria magazine, and uh, a copy had ended up in his hands, and he contacted me through Facebook, and he said, you know, Gene, I sent him a a picture of it, and he wants a copy of it sent to his management, and he wants your phone number and your email, and I said, great, you know, I was flattered that Mm -hmm. it come to his attention, and I gave him all that, and I mailed it, and I, I never heard anything, so... I thought, well, that could have easily fallen through the cracks. Uh, and he had a signing coming up. So I went to the signing, and I handed him a copy of that. And I also slipped in, of course, 
my real comic, The Children's mm-hmm. Vampire Hunting Brigade, and he looked at them both and he said, this I'm familiar with. And he said, now this other one I don't know. And I said, well, yeah, because I, I, I sent it to your management at Chris Alexander's you know, request through you. And, and he said – he puts his arm around me and he goes, just be careful you don't get yourself sued. You know? <laughs> what the hell? What the hell? Which I mean, was – you know, I mean – I saw the, the, the kids' comics. It was nothing like that. <laughs> no. No, it was just a little fun thing that we did as fans purely out of love and – you know, I Gene has always kind of had a soft spot in his heart for comics. He like thanks Stanley and mm-hmm. and and Jack Kirby on the back of the '78 solo album, and um, in the '90s when there were a couple of companies that were putting out unauthorized rock and roll comics that were bios of famous artists. Uh, when other people were suing, Gene made it a point to wear their shirts in concert as kind of a solidarity with them. So. You know, I didn't really expect that he would take it that seriously. But it, I, on the other hand, I guess if it wasn't any good, he it wouldn't have ever gotten his attention. So. <laughs> That's true. Point. That's actually very true. <laughs> he's as I understand that he's quite the businessman. I mean, he really studied uh, he really studied investment and and uh, he's a venture capitalist and and uh, uh, he took his he took the money that he made doing rock and roll. And really built a personal empire out of it. Well, there's too many horror stories of the people who blew through the money and and wound up with nothing. And there's also some good example stories of you know most most of the you know condos and and apartments in the valley are owned by you know, musicians. <laughs> Right. Fame. I remember. Yeah, but there's there's no retirement plan in in rock and roll, you know. So I, you can't blame the guy for wanting to protect his trademarks, and I, you know, I, I totally get that. Mm-hmm. And I I do want to say though that, um, you know, um, I had a a friend of mine that was a big comics fan and uh, also a big Kiss fan who. Uh, unfortunately, ended up passing away from cancer, and Gene made it a point to call him and talk to him before he died. So I don't mean to paint the guy as a villain. He's definitely shown <laughs> that he has a, a heart on uh, several occasions. Well, and, uh, you know, it, it could have been a warning um, that uh, that legal departments get busy on things whether or not they have the go-ahead. From- <laughs> sure. Yeah, Weird Al Yankovic has some stories about that. Oh, I'm sure he does. I'm sure he does. Yeah, at a certain point, legal departments sort of behave like attack dogs, you know, whether or not the, their owners want them to attack. So Yeah, they just sort of bark at anything that moves. Um, exactly. So where was it in your career that you decided that you wanted to be a writer instead of, well, in addition to being a musician? Well, you what, know, what, what was that I've spark always for written. You? I've all, over the years, I've, I, you know, I, I wrote all the lyrics for my band, basically, and um, I had a short story published way back in like 2000 um, in a magazine called Dreams of Decadence. Mm. That was sort of the last vestige of the pulp magazines. It was um, by DNA Publications. It was a story called What We Did to Lugosi, and the idea was that there was this rift between the old generation of vampires and the new generation and uh it was caused because you had this guy bello lugosi who was 
portraying the vampires in this very romantic light and suddenly the new generation was kind of getting off on the idea that they didn't have to hide in the shadows anymore that it might actually be kind of elegant and alluring to be a vampire out in the open and um and as a punishment the old guard ended up turning him into a morphing addict so that he would know what it was like to have that kind of craving that a vampire actually had. But of course, Lugosi had the last laugh on them all because his portrayal was so iconic that he ended up himself becoming immortal and bringing the vampire into the public consciousness. So I mean, this he, is, but he died in 1959, or did he? Hmm. Right, right. Well, in some ways, he, you know, in 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 the physical ways, he did, but he's obviously immortal now. That's right. When it's, you think of the classic vampire, it's still his image that first comes to mind. You know, and it's it's uh, the imitation of him that everybody uh, goes to straight away, even if, if they it's a do, silly one. Even if, if it's bleh, a silly one. Bleh. That's right. I Everything from, in. you know, the count on Sesame mm-hmm. Street to Count Chocula, it's permeated <laughs> you know, to, to the, the To Dracula right. in, in Mad Monster Party. That's right. Oh, That's right. You know, Which, oh, I got to tell you guys, uh, speaking of vampires, I got to work on Hotel Transylvania 2 in my day job recording ADR, and we recorded Mel Brooks as Dracula's father. So that was fun. <laughs> okay, you just made my oh, day. <laughs> Adam Sandler awesome. plays Dracula in that film. I think that's I think some of his yeah, best yeah. work. Yeah, I think so too. I I can't stand <laughs> his live action stuff, to be frank. But uh, but no, his Frank was someone else. <laughs> Rimshot. Um, yeah, I can't stand his live action movies, but his voiceover work is is a lot of fun. Yeah, no, those movies, the Hotel Transylvania movies, are kind of like the modern update of the Mad Monster Party. They kind it of really are, is. yeah. Oh, yeah. You're right. No, that's that's a good observation. With its own stable of celebrity voices. Yes. I didn't do that. <laughs> I didn't do that. <laughs> Let's see. So what else are you working on? Can What can you tell us? Well, uh... Let's see, I can tell you a couple of other cool things. I just got invited to be a guest in Glasgow uh, for 2016 for the Glasgow Comic-Con, which is pretty neat. <laughs> That's becoming the hotbed of, of attention in the UK, isn't it? Glasgow? It, 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 was, it was Cardiff for a while because Doctor Who's production was out of there, but Glasgow now Glasgow is where it's at. Well, why, there are a why? lot of um, why successful Scottish writers and artists mm-hmm. that have come out of Glasgow it does seem to be kind of um, the hub of comics activity in that country for whatever reason. Peter Capaldi for that matter. And allegedly yeah, Lieutenant Commander Montgomery Scott was supposed to have been from Glasgow. Ah, okay. I didn't know that I don't. Why do I know these things? <laughs> I'm just excited that I'll get a chance to see in real life some of the places that I wrote about in the uh, the brigade books. Yeah, maybe you better change them next time. Now that you you will have seen them. <laughs> That's right. Now I can get them right. <laughs> Are you concerned that uh, you might have to make sweeping changes? No, because I I did my research, and you know I know that the stuff that I that I did was basically right. I used a couple of uh, you know Scottish consultants for the the dialect and. I'm sure if there was anything in there that was egregiously wrong, they would have brought it to my attention. 
Nothing like the east side of Chicago or something, right? Right, right. <laughs> I love the way the dialect is expressed in your books. It's oh, it's not uh, uh, it, it's not written so thickly that uh, it's it's authentic, right. but there's enough of the flavor in it that you can clearly get the sense that it's Scotland. Yeah, I tried to walk that fine line between not being so authentic that you completely alienate the non-Scottish reader and yet still getting a little bit of the of the flavor of it so that it feels more or less authentic. Um, let's see, what else can I tell you? You know, um, I just got backed in the campaign by Ross Ritchie, who's the head of Boom Studios, and that's... Uh, makes me feel all warm and fuzzy because I'm a big fan of the comics that Boom Studios puts out. I think they do some pretty amazing work. I said, uh, such, such as? Such as? Um, well, I think that, like, one of the best things they've done in terms of what I've read is uh, Sons of Anarchy, their adaptation of mm, that, mm-hmm. is really, uh, you know, for, for something that's essentially a TV tie-in and could be a throwaway, uh, they really capture the flavor of that show and, you know, tell new stories in in an exciting way. And there's a whole bunch of, um, new books that they've, that they've come out with that are, you know, they're kind of trying to do some, some non-genre related stuff. Like there's a book that's out called, um, I know I'm going to get the, the title wrong, but it's all about like an all-female street gang, um, kind of like a female version of, of the Warriors. And I think it's the uh, the Curb Stompers that, that looks really, really cool. And they're just – they're trying new, innovative things. You know, they're doing kids uh, – uh, comics for kids, and they're doing some stuff that's more kind of H.P. Lovecraft-inspired horror and science fiction stuff that's – a little bit Starship Troopers influenced. Just, you know, I, I wish I had the titles in front of me, but trust me, if, you know, if it says boom on there, you know, it, there's a good chance that it's it's a book worthy of you at least picking up and looking through. Well, they sure aren't limiting themselves. I'll say that for them. And it yeah. must, it's certainly a vote of confidence in your work to have somebody like that endorsing what you do, even if it's just to, you know, drop a buck on you and say hi. It's right. still something. Right. But yeah, he exactly. didn't do that. So I was very, very flattered by that. Yeah. And um, so then the other thing that Henry and I are working on is a new book that's going to be full color. Um, and I think I mentioned this at least theoretically the last time we talked, although we hadn't started working on it yet, um, called Abigail O'Leary. And that book is about one of the first female police officers in the United yes, States. Yes, you so, did mention. You did mention yeah. that. We are now about 14 pages into that, and it looks great. Um, Henry's, you know, totally captured the the period and, and, and done lots of research into making sure that looks authentic. Um, and the plan is to shop that at Comic-Con this summer to have about – equivalent to a, a first issue done where we can take it to various places and see if anybody's interested in putting it out. Golly, you're actually treating uh, San Diego Comic-Con as a industry trade show? Who'd have thunk? That's the idea. We'll see how well that works. <laughs> I understand that 
New York Comic Con is actually much better for that, the, since so many of the publishers are there. Well, yeah, but uh, LA's or San Diego sooner, so that's that's true too. But right. if you don't, yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. New York has definitely, within the last year or so, become sort of a rival for uh, San Diego in a lot of ways. I know that they've claimed that they have higher numbers, but it's a little weird mm. because they kind of count their numbers a little bit differently than San Diego does. Well, San Diego actually stopped being able to um, truthfully report their numbers many, many years ago. They say, oh, 135,000 people. Well, no. It's whatever the it's, fire marshal allows. Yeah, if they right. if they actually... Uh, if they actually told the fire marshal how many people were actually in the building, they'd shut it down. There's yeah. no question. And, and then there's the whole. More. And then there's the whole constellation of events, you know, suites, uh, uh, re- invaded restaurants, and things like that, all o- all around uh, downtown San Diego. And it goes uphill about twelve blocks from the convention center, need- and it's just saturated with people. We need to stake out a place. Yeah, it basically takes over the whole city. I got to say, it does. you know, I, I got approved as a pro two years ago. And if I hadn't done that, I don't think I would be able to get tickets. As it is, we're staying at a hotel that's outside Hotel Circle and, you know, like about a half mile from the nearest tram stop. So it's yeah, dire. That, that's, that's, <laughs> that's where we were the last time okay. we went down. We, it's, I think I know what you're talking about. It's the, the Hyatt down way at the end of the, uh, the main drag, and you have to walk like ten blocks to get to the convention center. Yeah, this and, one's like it's it's I think even farther out than that. Like I'm anticipating a good thirty to thirty five minutes uh, bus ride to get there. <laughs> oh, and that's and that's without traffic. <laughs> right, right. So, oh, homie, don't play that. <laughs> what are some of the other influences that have? inspired you and have gone into the creation of these books well okay so in age of the wicked uh, part of the plot takes place in a, what's called a taxi dance club and for those of you that don't know um, that they still exist primarily in along the texas and mexican border and still some out in los angeles um, and w- what you do is you pay a girl a certain amount of money to dance with you and then you could probably pay her a little bit more money to go off in a dark corner and that kind of thing for a few moments um so there's sort of these uh they sprang up out of the dance schools of world war ii and they're still around because you have heavy immigrant populations that don't speak English and have a hard time meeting girls. And this is kind of a cross between a strip club and um, a dance hall. Mm-hmm. So um, amongst the taxi dancers in real life, there is an urban legend about a sort of suave, debonair, rich young man who comes into the taxi dance club one night and talks one of the girls into leaving with him. And, of course, that's a big no-no. You're not supposed to do that. And they walk outside, and he embraces her, and suddenly she realizes that he has a tail and that she's bleeding all over, and she looks at him 
and he's his uh, he's pierced her all over. He is the devil himself, and simply embracing him has caused her eventual death. So, I thought that was an interesting urban legend, and I thought to myself, why don't we make that guy a vampire? Mm-hmm. That's a good fit. Yeah, That's a and good then fit. I had a personal. Ex- Experience that also ended up working its way into it. I was actually working on the promo video for the first Kickstarter, and I was it was really late at night at Fox. I was walking back to my car. Suddenly, there was pea soup fog all over the place, and I there's nobody around. It's like total Jack the Ripper territory. And I get to my car in the parking garage. There's no other cars around except one truck that is just driving fast in circles on the same level with the windows down blasting opera and <laughs> not, not where I thought that was going to go yeah yeah. that's a lot of pieces that don't normally fit together that's enough to give you the willies right there that's right and so that um, <clears throat> got me th- that ended up being a scene in uh, Age of the Wicked that I won't tell you the outcome but, um, you know, I, I like to try to incorporate both urban legends and also personal experiences. I, you know, I, I, there are other personal experiences that wound up, wound up being in the book, but, you know, I can't really go into too much more detail or, as you said, I'd, I'd spoil some of the plot. Are you a fan of urban legends? Do you, do you study oh, them? Oh yeah, I love them. I think, I think they're fascinating. I've read all the books and, uh, you know, the choking Doberman on, um, because I think that they are a real window into the zeitgeist and the psychology and the neurosis of the time from which they spring up, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're a very interesting reflection of people's fears and anxieties in society. There's the Candyman, the Mothman, uh, the Darkman. Right, right. Mm-hmm. All, um, all uh, legendary urban characters. Yeah, yeah. And there's some that are unique to certain areas. Like there's – a um, in, in Pennsylvania where I grew up, there was a place called uh, Cadillac Tunnel, which was a two-way road. And then it was a tunnel that had a very sharp turn. Uh, and the tunnel itself was only one lane wide, right? So there's an urban legend that on prom night years ago, you had two Cadillacs that were going in opposite directions, and you were supposed to stop and honk your horn before you went through the tunnel. But because it was prom night, they were both drunk and speeding, and they both uh, had a head-on collision inside the tunnel, and everybody died, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's a plausible story, too. It is. It is. Um and I don't remember if I talked about this last time, but, you know, there's another urban legend that's from the area where I grew up called the Green Man. Yes, and yes. That was, we did that talk about that to you guys? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Gr- the Green um, Man in the cave and, and uh, you know, it's the uh, the kids would see the light in the cave from a distance. And There you go. There you go. So that's another good one. Um, you know, all the way down to you go to North Carolina and there are, uh, you know, the flaming ship of Ocracoke, which was actually plankton being reflected by the light of the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so yeah, yeah, definitely urban legends are a great source for for material. And um have you ever made up an urban legend? I mean, you know. You know, I've got a story that I'm a short story that I'm working on that is kind of making up an urban legend. It's going to be about um some people that solved the mystery of the murder of Edgar Allan Poe by decoding a children's nursery rhyme. Oh, I like that. Ooh. Yeah. Nevermore. So I'm working I'm working on that. I'm actually I plan to do a lot more short stories and prose writing because I just kind of reconnected with uh the LA branch of the Horror Writers Association. Mm-hmm. And hanging out with all these very, very talented horror writers has got me thinking more along the lines of uh, doing some short stories. So that's one that I'm working on. And then I've got another one that's going to be a Christmas horror story called Black Coal. Ooh, ooh, I like that. Just like the title Snow of White it is only not. Right. <laughs> do, you, do you find that horror as a genre, do you, do you think that horror as a genre gets short shrift? Yeah, I mean, I think that all genre fiction, um, you know, tends to um, unfortunately be classified as as less than um, straight non-genre fiction, which is interesting because it's almost the exact opposite in the comic book world, right? Like in comics – you know, anything in the superhero genre is considered mainstream, and if it's science fiction, fantasy, horror related, then it's, you know, considered, okay, more or less within the same ballpark. But as soon as you are telling a story that's outside of that, it's considered the other. If it right? could really happen, like your your street gang stories. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and then, yeah. you know, but I also think that, that if you actually look at a lot of um, stuff that's considered to be classic literature. Uh, you know, Shakespeare has a lot of genre elements. Oh, in sure. Him. Those fantasy elements all the time. You know, your yeah, Midsummer Night's Dream, your Tempest. Yeah. So, so, you know, part of it is that once something kind of gets accepted by the establishment, uh, they do, do their best to, um, to stamp it as being something else, um, much in the same way that, you know, people, uh, hated Led Zeppelin when, mm. when they first came out and they said, Oh, that's your, your, your kid brother's band and, and stuff. And, you know, that's not real music. And now, you know, it's considered so iconic that people say, Oh, you know, that's not really rock and roll. That's, they're really a blues band, you know, because the blues has <laughs> afforded more respect than rock and roll. And old bluesmen must just laugh their butts off at all, all of it. Yeah, you know, just right. just I'm, like uh, uh, people who do horror comics. Horror comics were the thing before superheroes. Well, EC they were, comics and they were, the and 19th, they were the devil. You late know, forties and early fifties. EC comics. Yeah, well, not necessarily before superheroes. They were but concurrent, but they were the big. ones being blamed for all the bad bad things. I don't think yeah. it was the superheroes that the comics code was intended for i think it was the the horror stuff with well, vi- much days, more violence well these somebody's going to make a great movie about that period in the senate subcommittee meetings that were held because you know william, i don't know if you guys have seen the footage but william uh gaines who published ec and all that stuff he went before the senate subcommittee and he said i can no 
more explain to you the harmless, vicarious thrill uh, that a child can get out of reading a good horror comic than I can explain the joys of sex to a frigid old maid. And <laughs> <laughs> well, he's got a point. <laughs> you yeah, know? <laughs> Well, and and it later turned out that Doctor Wortham had uh, basically faked up his evidence, and and the whole he, thing he was faked a lot of it, and also you know comics were so ubiquitous amongst the youth that interviewing a bunch of juvenile delinquents and saying do you read comics was about, about as meaningful as asking them if they ate candy. You know, all uh-huh. kids ate candy, so of course they did. Oh yes. I didn't think but, of asking the, the the straight A students who would have given the same answer. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, getting back to the the previous question, though, I mean the 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 amount of respect that horror gets uh, yes. in the in you know as as a genre. Um, uh, well, you can m- tell when it picked up again because they started getting movie budgets. <laughs> well, well, yeah, that too. But uh, call it late seventies, early eighties. But the mere label, the mere act of labeling something, oh, this is horror, uh, draws attention away from the fact that it also has a character and a plot and and you know character development and and uh, well, in order to be a good structure. horror story or a good genre story of any kind, first it must be a good story. <laughs> Let's right. start there. Well, I think it's it's a combination of two things, right? I mean, horror tends to remind people of uncomfortable truths, and certain people do not want to be made to feel uncomfortable in that way. You know, I mean, one of the pervasive themes of horror is that some way, somehow, we are all going to die someday. And there are some people that would much rather live in a complete state of denial and never uh, have to deal with that fact if they can avoid it, you know. But then also in mm-hmm. the culture, there's this idea that if anything is too popular, it can't be any good. So if Stephen King sells millions and millions of books, then he must not be a good writer. Yeah, and like if people love Star Wars, it must be garbage. Right, you know? exactly. <laughs> Even though it's the defining movie of our generation. Mm-hmm. So um, you have, when does your Kickstarter end? So the Kickstarter ends uh, midnight May 4th. Ah. Oh, that's a propitious time. Yeah. (laughs) Now, we were just talking about Star Wars. May the 4th be with you. Exactly. It's probably a good time to end a Kickstarter for something that isn't related to Star Wars, because after that, you're not going to get any attention at all. (laughs) That could very well be. That could very well be. But, you know, that's okay, because I'll be... I'll be excited to see the new Star Wars movie too. Um, well, and, and, and but that thing, that said, I'm, I'm what's that? That said, looking at the pages on the Kickstarter page yeah. uh, for the Children's Vampire Hunting Brigade: Age of the Wicked, this stuff is just rock solid. This is this is film noir on paper. Well, thank you. You know, I think that I mean not to say that the art in the first volume wasn't. You know, exceptionally good. Oh, it but was. I think but that this is Kennedy better. Has, has made a quantum leap forward in terms of uh, his artistic style in in the book as well. And you know, I think um, the fact that he is likely to be a nominee for the Russ Manning Award based on the art in Volume One. Um, wait till people see Volume Two; they're just going to be blown away. Um, 
And oh, one other thing I forgot to mention is on May the 2nd, which is Free Comic Book Day, oh, yes. I'm going mm. to be at the Culver City Teen Center all day. Uh, a guy named Mike Wellman, who owns the Comic Bug Stores, is putting on an all-day convention um, that's going to have a dealer's room of probably about 70 local artists and writers and stuff. So if you come to that and you sign up on our mailing list, you can get a free issue, uh, a free copy of issue one while supplies last. Well, I think I've already got one, but okay, well, <laughs> we, may, we may do it anyway. But the listeners, but the, the listeners, listeners could, could right. go do this. David Lucarelli, thank you for joining us on this week's episode of The Event Horizon. It's been a pleasure having you back on the show. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I had a blast. Thanks. And we're out. Awesome. And I'm going to stop the recording while I can. And, uh, yeah. So that show, that'll turn out to be... You have just heard episode 98 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for April 25th, 2015. Our guest this evening has been David Lucarelli, author of the graphic novel series The Children's Vampire Hunting Brigade. Your hosts have been Susan Fox and Gene Turnbow. If you are an author or other creator and you would like to be on the show, contact our production manager, Cat Carter, at catcarter at kryptonradio.com. This episode will air again on April 26th, 2015 at 4 p.m. Pacific and at various additional times throughout the coming week. See the Krypton Radio website at kryptonradio.com for showtimes in your area. Once all the showtimes have passed, you will find this and other episodes as downloads at the Krypton Radio website and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by legendary science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents, except where provided by others, are copyright 2015 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs>